Supernatural in Central Florida. It's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 114th episode of the History Goes Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on this episode, we are featuring a battleship, the USS Lexington. This was a very important aircraft carrier during the Second World War, and apparently it's quite haunted. So we're looking forward to sharing that with you guys. Before we do that, we want to point you at our website, historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us some feedback, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. We have some comments from our listeners, and so this comes from Samantha Joe. I just had to share this story with y'all. I'm a youth group leader, and yesterday I took my group to this place called Kersey Valley Escape. You go, and they put you into rooms or a house, and you have to find clues and solve puzzles to get from one room to the next. And you have to do it in an hour or less. It is so fun. We got into one particular room that held a dilapidated casket, and on a large dresser sat a Ouija board. It had writing on it that appeared with a black light that was a clue. All I could hear was Denise Mormeyer in my head saying, Don't touch it. Don't tempt the spirits. I knew it was all pretend, of course, but still, I was really freaked out by its presence. We even had to carry it with us to another room, and shortly after that, I threw it at a body hanging from the ceiling to protect myself and the group from a fake chainsaw-wielding maniac. I'd never thought of using a Ouija board as a weapon. (laughs) I know, new weapon for uh, defense. Ouija fence? It was too funny. Oh, and my little group of brilliant kids, and I sadly did not make it out in the allotted time. Any of you who live in the central part of North Carolina, you should definitely visit Kersey Valley for spooky woods, escape, zip lining, and a corn maze in the fall. And speaking of North Carolina, Stephen Pappas is trying to set up a meetup for those of you who listen in North Carolina. He wrote in the Spooktacular Crew, Hey, crew, Stephen here. You know that guy with the southern accent who crashes a podcast every so often with his loudmouth ramblings, which we all appreciate, I think. Anyway, I just wanted to reach out to any of the crew members around me and see if in the next few months, depending on interest, anyone would like to do a meetup. Nothing fancy, and I know I'm not as fun as Diane and Denise, but I just figured I would see if there was interest. I know we have some North Carolina and South Carolina listeners, and that I'd see if anyone wanted to grab a coffee or beer if we are all of age in Charlotte. I'm partial because I live there, but it is fairly central. Anyway, just an idea. Hit me back with any thoughts. So let Stephen know over in the Spooktacular crew if you'd like to try to do that meetup. And I let everybody know in that same posting what dates we are planning to do our Carolina road trip. We'll be leaving here on September 23rd, and we'll be traveling all the way through to October 2nd. And so we'll have a more set schedule letting you know what cities we're going to be in and for how long and what different tours we're going to do in the next couple weeks. That's Denise's department. So, And hopefully the mouse will give her the time off, otherwise we won't be able to do it. But we're looking forward to that. 
John Benicia writes, thank you so much for mentioning the old Ghostly Talk podcast in a, re- in a recent episode. That podcast could be the granddaddy of all current paranormal podcasts. I highly recommend people digging into Ghostly Talk. I love your podcast and I found out about it through Bizarre States. And I also want to thank you, John, for being one of our executive producers. We also have three listeners who've had experiences at the locations that we have featured on the show. First of all, Tara Williams-Case, she's one of our truck drivers. And Denise, we're getting so many truck drivers listening that we're almost like coast to coast. It's like on the road again is going to become like the spook spook cruise song (laughs) on the road again. Or we could say there's a ghost again. (laughs) Anyway, she wrote this in the spectacular crew that she had gone to Myrtle's Plantation and she shared some great pictures there, including the haunted mirror, which to me looks like there's something in that right upper right corner. There's something weird about that mirror. Perhaps so. She wrote, I felt a heaviness in my chest in one room and smelled an overwhelming scent of gardenia. There were flowers around, but no gardenias, and the only other woman on the tour smelled the gardenias also. The guide said that the lady of the house loved fresh flowers. My husband and I are truck drivers, so we're lucky enough to get to many locations. We have a bucket list of places to see, many haunted. We were lucky enough to be delivered 20 miles from here, and we had a few extra hours, so we decided to check a location off our list. Well, we're jealous. We want to visit that place. Emily West posted on Eastern State, I've been to Eastern State and it is really creepy. At one point, I walked away from my group to look into one of the cells and it felt like someone was watching me, but I was the only person in that area. Next time, I want to go at night. And I told Emily, have fun by herself. (laughs) (laughs) That one will let you do your own meetup. And Susie Dume, and I hope I said that last name right, said of her visit to the Queen Mary, we had a very strong scent of roses pervade our room for about 10 seconds, come and gone. We didn't experience anything else, not even in Churchill's room, no cigar smell. But the pool area is just creepy to be in anyway. And... I remember from that episode, it sounds like a really creepy area. We do want to send a special shout out and thank you to the guys over at Astonishing Legends, especially Scott Philbrook. We were tweeting back and forth to each other because he had posted something about, I believe it was the top 10 haunted hotels out there. You know, Denise, there's like, I don't know, a thousand of those lists. But anyway, there were three locations on that list that we have done on the show. So I just tweeted back at him that we had done that. And he retweeted out those three podcasts. So I really appreciate them doing that for us. We want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Kristen. Hey, Kristen. Allison. Hi, Allison. Medi. Hey, Medi. Susie. Hi, Susie. Brandy with an I. Hey, Brandy with an I. Pavey. Hi, Pavey. Nicole. Nicole, hello. Christy with an I. Hi, Christy with an I. And Chelsea. Hey, Chelsea. Denise, are you ready to board the battleship? I absolutely am. Here we go. Become an executive producer of the History Goes Bump podcast for as little as a buck a month. For $5 a month, you can access exclusive content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. And for $10 and above a month, you get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump for more information. Or you can give us a one-time donation by clicking the donate button at historygoesbump.com. History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. This episode's Moment in Oddity was suggested by Toby Hesenauer and researched by Bob Sherfield. Standing at some 12,500 feet above sea level, 
high in the Andes of Bolivia, is the pre-Columbian city of Tiwanaku. The city, located on what was once the historical shoreline of Lake Titicaca, was one of the most important in ancient South America. It is believed to be the capital of an empire that stretched across Bolivia and into Peru and Chile. Though the people who inhabited this site left no written history, oral tradition and legends hold that the area around Lake Titicaca was the cradle of life for the first humans on Earth. It is said that the creator god, Viracocha, rose from the waters of the lake at Tiwaanaku to create the sun, the moon, and the stars, and to breathe life into stone to create mankind. Sometime between 300 BC and 300 AD, Tiwaanaku became a moral and cosmological center for the empire that surrounded it, a place of pilgrimage for many people. A temple complex grew up centered around a cross-shaped pyramid structure called Akapana, 257 meters wide and 16.5 meters tall. Surrounding this pyramid are a ceremonial courtyard, a 5-meter tall raised terrace called Pumapunku, 167 meter long and 160 meter wide, and the Kalasasya, a large 91 meter long courtyard. It was within this area that 19th century European explorers rediscovered the Gate of the Sun. The Gate of the Sun is 3 meters tall and 4 meters wide and constructed from a single piece of stone weighing an estimated 10 tons. When rediscovered, it was lying horizontally and a large crack had split it into two pieces. It has now been erected, though archaeologists believe that the place it was found in is not its original location. That site remains uncertain. The gate is heavily engraved with symbols that are believed to hold astronomical or astrological significance. It has been theorized that these carvings may have served as a calendar. Carved into the lintel surrounding a central figure are 48 squares, each of which contains a winged effigy, 16 with the head of a condor and 32 with human faces. The central figure, who so far hasn't been identified, is that of a man whose head is surrounded by 24 rays, perhaps representing the rays of the sun. This has led him to being labeled as the sun god. In his hands, he holds staffs, symbolizing thunder and lightning. Whilst the gate may appear to represent a calendar, it is not possible to fit its 290 days divided into 12 months of 24 days into the solar year. Other, more radical theories have suggested that it was once a portal to another dimension or the land of the gods. Now that certainly is odd. Are you afraid of the dark? Day in History. This Day in History is brought to us by Jessica Bell. On this day, March 25, in 1965, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. led 25,000 marchers to the state capitol in Montgomery, Alabama, to protest the denial of voting rights to African Americans. Martin Luther King led thousands of nonviolent demonstrators to the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery, Alabama, after a five-day, 54-mile march from Selma, Alabama, where local African Americans, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and the Southern Christian Leadership Conference had been campaigning for voting rights. King told the assembled crowd, quote, There never was a moment in American history more honorable and more inspiring than the pilgrimage of clergymen and laymen of every race and faith pouring into Selma to face danger at the sight of its embattled Negroes, end quote. 
During this final rally held on the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery, King proclaimed, quote, The end we seek is a society at peace with itself, a society that can live with its conscience, and that will be a day not of the white man, not of the black man. That will be the day of man as man, end quote. On August 6th, in the presence of King and other civil rights leaders, President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965. History Goes Bump Podcast. And this location is suggested by listener David Robinson, and our research assistant was Stephen Pappas. During the Second World War, sea battles became a much more prevalent and impactful form of warfare. Great battleships and aircraft carriers became massive assets and a nation with an abundance of them was a power to be feared. This was proven in December of 1941 with the attack on Pearl Harbor, which forced the hand of the U.S. government and set off America's involvement in World War II. Many ships were lost to the sea during battle, but one ship's legacy carried on in an interesting way. Another ship was named for it, and this ship went on to be the oldest working aircraft carrier in the U.S. Navy. Something else continues on in the afterlife. There are many reports of unexplained happenings aboard the carrier. Join us as we explore the history and the hauntings of the USS Lexington. World War II is considered to be the most destructive war in history. This war was the gathering of the perfect storm. As Germany's economy crumbled, helping Adolf Hitler rise to power, Japan was seeking to rise in power as well and on a quest for empire while Mussolini had brought fascism to Italy. These three realized they all had the same goal for world domination, and they joined forces. The war lasted from 1939 to 1945, and nearly every nation on Earth was involved. World War II made the declaration that World War I was the war to end all wars preposterous. When looking at deaths caused by this war, including civilians during both battles and because of famine and disease caused by war, nearly 80 million people died worldwide. Wow. During World War II, the Battle of the Coral Sea lasted for four days, and it was the first air-sea battle in history. Allied forces had intercepted a message that revealed that the Japanese were planning to invade Port Moresby in southeast New Guinea. This would give Japan control of the Coral Sea. The Japanese were surprised by an attack of American planes from aircraft carriers when they entered the area. Both sides would suffer losses, but the victory went to the Allies because the Japanese were left without enough planes to carry out the invasion on Port Moresby. The strategic victory would also help the Allies in the future Battle of Midway. That battle would end Japan's advance and lead to the final surrender of Japan. On May 8, 1942, during the Battle of the Coral Sea, Tragedy struck the U.S. Naval Fleet. The USS Lexington, hull number CV-2, was sunk. Lady Lex, as the ship was known, had been launched in 1925 and was a very early aircraft carrier for the U.S. Navy. It was originally meant to be a battle cruiser, 
But when a treaty canceled the production of battle cruisers, the Lexington was converted into an aircraft carrier. This was an advantage because ships could hold up better under torpedo attack than carriers that were specifically built as carriers could. The Lexington could carry up to 78 aircraft at one time and therefore was a huge asset in the Pacific campaign of World War II. It had been lucky enough to be at sea during the Pearl Harbor attacks, but it unfortunately only sailed for a few months before being sunk during this battle. 2,735 members of the crew were evacuated and 216 were killed in the sinking. Their legacy and that of the USS Lexington did not end there, though. The USS Cabot was laid down in Quincy, Massachusetts on June 15, 1941. This was the same harbor that the previous USS Lexington had been laid down in some 16 years earlier. The Cabot was a mighty carrier with the ability to carry up to 110 aircraft and travel up to 20,000 miles at 15 knots. Her maximum speed was 33 knots, roughly 38 miles per hour. It was still under construction when the tragedy at the Battle of the Coral Sea took place, and the workers put in a request with the government to rename the Cabot the new USS Lexington. It was renamed as the 5th USS Lexington on June 16, 1942, and was whole number CV-16. She launched on September 23, 1942, with the crew of 3,000 ready to carry on the legacy of the previous USS Lexington. And a fun fact here is that the crew daily consumed 660 pounds of meat, 164 gallons of milk, and 97 dozen eggs. That's a lot of food. (laughs) They were like the Gaston of old times. What amazes me is when you read off a list like that, these guys are out in the middle of the ocean somewhere and storing all of that. I know battleships are big, but I guess it's kind of like when we watch a cruise ship load up. And you see all the food they're bringing on there, but that's for a week. These guys are going out for, who knows, months at a time. So just interesting. They go through that much food and trying to keep everything fresh. They would have to stop, I guess, to get milk and eggs somewhere along the route because you can't keep that for very long, especially back then. I don't know what kind of refrigeration they had on the ships. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. You should have just taken a cow and they could have just milked it right into the mouth. Denise, do you know how many cows they would have to have on the boat to get 164 gallons of milk? Here's our stockade over here. Moo, moo. The ship traveled through the Panama Canal to join the Pacific Fleet. Unfortunately, on the way, a test flight off deck went wrong and one of the pilots, the 1939 Heisman Trophy winner, Niall Kinnick, was killed. The ship continued on to Pearl Harbor and then participated in raids on the air bases on Tarawa. The Battle of Tarawa took place in November of 1943. The goal was to seize the island of Bedio, which was under the control of Japan. Things started out rough because low tides kept American ships from clearing coral reefs that surrounded the island. The Marines sent to take the island ended up having to wade in through chest-deep water while being shot at by the Japanese. That sounds like a fun day. Uh, You know, what that does is it reminds me of the initial scene in Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. It's just a terrifying thing. Where the bullets are zipping through the Mm -hmm. water. Mm -hmm. The battle lasted for 76 hours and was bloody, but the U.S. Marines finally took the island. The Lexington then went on to the raid at Wake Island. This raid would help America to decide on the best way to win the war in the Pacific based on how effective the new faster carriers and the Hellcat fighters would prove to be. The Lexington returned to Pearl Harbor after Wake Island to gear up for the next operation at the Gilbert Islands. The Lexington sailed for a raid on Kwajalein on December 4, 1942. 
At this rate, the Lexington was responsible for damaging two cruisers and 30 aircraft before being struck by a torpedo, which knocked out its steering capabilities. Admiral Charles Pownall was in charge at this time, and he had told his crew not to fire at night because he didn't want to give their position away. That plan backfired, and the Admiral would later be replaced. An emergency hand-operated steering mechanism was built, and the holes of the hull were welded shut with heavy steel plates. The ship managed to escape, but was later reported sunk to the Japanese military. In actuality, the ship was very much afloat and made it to Washington State for repairs before being sent back out. This false reporting of the Lexington being sunk occurred multiple times, earning it the nickname, which it is most well known by, the Blue Ghost. The Japanese forces referred to it as such because they said it had a knack for reappearing after it had been sunk. The carrier was painted in a dark blue camouflage to make it hard to see, which is where the blue part of the nickname comes from. And I believe it was one of the episodes on Stuff You Missed in History class where they talked about this camouflage paint that they would paint on the boats to make them basically disappear. And I'm wondering if this is one of those, this carrier was one of those ships that they did this with because it had that dark blue camouflage. It'd be really hard to see on the horizon because it was the same color as the water. And since the carrier's already flat, so I'm wondering if this is something that they had done there to make it so you couldn't see it so well. Again, <laughs> making it kind of ghostly. It just appears out of nowhere. Absolutely. Of course, that kind of doesn't give you a lot of comfort if you're one of the sailors on the ship, because <laughs> if they get lost at sea or lose their bearings or something breaks down, they're not going to be real easy to find either. That is true. I, I hadn't thought about that. The USS Lexington went on to participate in the Battle of the Philippine Sea, which was Japan's attempt to get back on the offensive side of things. They failed miserably with inexperienced fighter pilots and far less planes than the Americans brought. Japan's aircraft losses were large and they had little success in hitting any battleships or carriers. They just kept sending these waves out, Denise, and it was like the Americans had or the Allies had 200 and something planes up there. And then the Japanese would send out 50 <laughs> and they would well, get pounded. I can't help but think when they're like Japan's aircraft losses were large. Well, they also had kamikaze pilots, which would tend to lose a lot of aircraft as well. That is true. And I've never understood that tactic. I guess it's the same thing that ISIS uses or the, you know, any of these terrorists as they go out and blow themselves up. Well, that works in a, in a sense, but then you don't have that fighter anymore. And in this case, with the kamikaze pilots, you lose a plane too. And those aren't cheap. The next battle for the Lexington was at Lady Gulf. This was the first hit by the Allies as they battled for the Philippines. Japan's forces were disjointed and not together as a fleet, so each ship had to fight independently. It did not go well for Japan. At both the Battle of the Philippine Sea and Battle of Lady Gulf, the Lexington was reported as having sunk, holding up its ghost ship reputation. Because again, it hasn't sunk. So forget about the unsinkable Molly Brown. We have the, ex <laughs> the unsinkable, unsinkable USS Lexington. Lexington. <laughs> the USS Lexington didn't get a musical. That's not fair. The Lexington spent 21 months in combat and helped destroy 847 enemy aircraft, 15 which were shot down by the carrier's guns. She had participated in nearly every battle in the Pacific Theater. After the war, the ship was decommissioned, and in 1947, it joined the National Reserve Fleet. The ship was recommissioned as an attack carrier in 1955 and served in various capacities, including being involved in the Cuban Missile Crisis, until it made it to port in Pensacola, Florida. In 1969, it began operating as a training ship, both here and at its current place of port, Corpus Christi, Texas. It served this way for 22 years. 
1980, it was the first aircraft carrier to have women stationed on it as crew members, and it was finally decommissioned permanently on November 8, 1991. In her time, the carrier had set more records than any other Essex-class carrier in the history of naval aviation. In 1992, she opened as a museum, and to date, over 5.5 million people have visited the ship. Not us yet. We have to get there. With all of the action this ship saw in a terrible war, it is no wonder there are reports of hauntings on board the ship. Many guests have claimed to see a World War II-era man standing on the deck of the ship before quickly fading away. Oddly enough, he is seen near where a plane collided with the ship, causing multiple casualties. People have reported residual hauntings as well. Many people claim to hear disembodied shouts, cries, and screams coming from other areas of the ship. Some even report hearing what sounds like distant gunfire or naval artillery going off. Many guests, including a member of the crew for one of the ghost hunting shows, report feeling highly uncomfortable in the areas of the ship, like the switch room. Some even report to feel sick. While it is odd, there is a lot of machinery in that room, and it could just be EMF issues. Museum guests have on occasion gotten a tour from a blue-eyed tour guide dressed in a white naval uniform. He is a polite young man and knows a lot about the engine room. Everybody calls him Charlie. The only problem is that Charlie is not part of the staff. He's also not part of the land of the living. It is believed that he is a former crew member who died after a Japanese kamikaze attack on Halloween in 1944 off the coast of the Philippines. And for those of you open-minded skeptics out there like us who find this hard to believe, on a Corpus Christi Color Times website, as many as 200 visitors have reported encounters with Charlie. A tour guide at the Lexington named David Deal said, quote, This apparition told things about the engine that I don't even know. Deal had actually served on the Lexington as both an airman and a catapult chief and retired in 1976. Can you imagine getting a tour aboard that ship with somebody who actually served on it? That would be, I mean, that would be the best, absolutely. The director of operations and exhibits at the museum, M. Charles Rustel, and I hope I said that last name right, has had many strange experiences. He has heard the rustling of clothes and footsteps behind him as he's walked out of his office on separate occasions. There was never anybody behind him. During restoration, a crew was in the middle of painting when they took a break for lunch. Upon their return, they found the painting done for them. I need a ghost like that around this house. I actually had one like that out in my area where I worked. I came back, all my dishes were done, but I actually think I know who it was. <laughs> <laughs> no ghost involved. But I was like, hey, look, I have, a, I have either a ghost or a fairy. A couple visiting the ship saw an apparition of a dark-haired man wearing dungarees and a white work shirt jump to the deck below. They thought surely he must be injured and they ran to help him. He was nowhere to be seen. Museum staffers have reported seeing two specters. One was a man dressed in a naval uniform and the other was dressed in a Japanese pilot's uniform. Both spirits disappeared. Many individuals report hearing screams of pain and terror in the engine room. This is the room that was hit by a kamikaze pilot during the war, causing many deaths. This was probably when Charlie died. A ghost cam has been installed in the engine room because of all the activity. A worker also reported seeing something odd on the ship one night. A storm was rolling into the area where the ship is anchored. When there was a particularly bright flash of lightning across the sky, the worker says he saw several men in naval uniforms running across the deck of the ship. Another bolt of lightning flashed, and the Navy seamen were no longer there. Along with lights flashing on and off, there are reports of full-bodied apparitions below deck as well. 
With all of the tragedies surrounding the Second World War, it is no surprise that we get reports of strange happenings all around the locations in which it was fought. Many people valiantly gave their lives, and their legacy lives on today through museums, films, and history books. So do these men and women still man their post in the afterlife? Are they still seen protecting the port at Corpus Christi? Is the USS Lexington haunted? That is for you to decide. There's a lot of activity going on there. And Denise, when you have 200 people all claiming to see the same apparition, makes it a little hard to not believe. Unless you're a total skeptic. That's true. But then you got to wonder why all of those people are having the same hallucination. (laughs) Good drugs. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. On our next episode, we are going to go to North Brother Island. This was suggested by our listener, Amy Consolation. And I hope I said that right. We do have some reviews to share. This first review is a five star from Dizzy Miss Lizzie 10. History is fantastic. I've recently become obsessed with this podcast. What I love the most is that it features things I may have never heard of and gives great detailed cultural history with the side of the paranormal. I love ghost tours for their intimate details of the life of those in the historic place. And this podcast brings that information right to me. The ladies are fantastic. They do a great job of finding the facts and leaving the paranormal up to you to decide whether it's fact or fiction. Well, thanks so much, Dizzy Miss Lizzie and Roughneck Chick. Five stars, spectacular. I'm a truck driver in the oil fields of Texas. I'm totally hooked on these ladies. They most definitely feed your mind full of ghostly history. They have added a lot to my bucket list. They do a bootabulous job. Do you love that, Denise? Bootabulous? I do. That's a great word. We want to thank you guys for listening to this episode. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Susie Doomy, Stephen Stratton, and John Kanya. Thank you. Check out the website at historygoesbump.com. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library, Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, one podcast at a time.